Aloha mai kakou. Welcome to the Aloha Friday Conversation, Art, Culture, and Ideas in Hawaii. I'm Noe Tanigawa. So glad you're here today. We've got some nice listening ahead for you. And if you've never heard the Aloha Friday song, you weren't here, or maybe you're just too young, today is your big day. But we're going to start on the street, or actually in the bushes on the Garden Island, Kauai took a different route with its houseless population during the COVID pandemic. In accordance with CDC guidelines, they set up five shelter-in-place locations where people could camp long-term but temporarily. Now, there are an estimated 500 houseless on Kauai. At least half stayed in the county camps at Anini Beach, Anahola, Lucy Wright Park there on the west side, Lydgate in Lihue, and South Pond in Hanapepe. Since March, the shelter camps have been closing as the parks return to normal use. Lydgate had the most built-up encampment, and a large contingent remained after authorities tried to clear that park at the beginning of this month. Last week, I got to talk with houseless advocate Kealoha Matsuda, founder of Healing Kauai's Houseless and Community Needs. Kealoha had been so worried about the dozens of people still in the park at Lydgate, but there was a sudden turnaround. <laughs> yeah. You know, we had good news today. Uh, Department of Hawaiian Homelands came down to meet with the Lydgate uh, community and let us know that they just, um, they're going to put them on Hawaiian Homelands for 30 days near the park. Is that crazy? Uh, help, help us for people who have not known the situation, Kealoha, how many people are there now and how many people have been there at Lydgate? Oh, I think there was a, between 100, 150 to start with. Um, people vacated after they closed on the park. Now there's about 58 people there left. Right now we only have one more safety zone left, which is Salt Pond, and that one has the most families and kapuna on it. So we are kind of worried about what's going to happen with that. Most well, people live in the bushes. We have a lot of people that live in the bushes because it's the only way that the cops won't move them because no matter where they are at the beach, they're going to be moved. We had, I had a lot of friends that were Hawaiian that were living on Anini Beach and a lot of them had to move to Big Island because they were getting harassed and they were not drug users at all. They're actually Hawaiian sovereignty. Yeah, that's just kind of what, what the situation is. So right now, all the nonprofits, we had a meeting today with the nonprofits and um, the members of Hawaii Community Alliance. We're just trying to share information so that we can be the most effective as possible. So it's called Kauai Community Alliance. So there's Catholic Charities is involved, Project Vision is involved. As we spread the word, more people are getting involved. And um, I think people are trying, are feeling the need. But it is hard, you know, I do tell people, yes, there are drug addicts out there, but there are still people and they still need help. And sometimes I was depressed before and I used to do drugs, not ice or anything like that, but enough to keep me down. And when you feel like there's no hope, that's when you become real suicidal. And then you don't, you have nothing already. So what else is there to lose, you know? So it's really important to me. And my brother committed suicide um, on drugs as well. So it's really important to me um, to care for other people because you never know what they're going through. And you can't just judge and say they're, they're a loss. That's, I guess that's why my heart is so strong on this movement, you know? Mm. The, the the kupuna, how many kupuna are, are, are involved in, in this 58 that are moving to this uh, Hawaiian homeland? I think about 38 are kupuna and the rest are mentally disabled or disabled or vet. And I think we have a few, there's actually a few people who are staying down there with the kupuna because it's their family. Uh, I think maybe like 20 people are disabled, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 15 people. And then in South Pond, there's, there's more. There's more on um, Kiki. I think they told me it was 36, 31 adults and 16 Kiki is at Salt Pond right now. Safety zones. Can you tell yeah. me the, the pros and cons of that? Because it's an idea. Oh, you yes. Know? Safety zone is a great idea. The only thing I would suggest is there need to be a program in place, like someone who's going to be there to make sure the rules are there. Because what happened is that they put them on this piece of property you know, there's people who are using, not using, people are trying to be clean. That's why the county is saying that they don't want them there anymore. 
but there was really nobody there to regulate anything and not the parks and recs either because parks and recs they already have a lot to do and trying to throw that on them was really difficult so i think having a point person to take care of that or a couple people depending on the size of the group but i think what felicia told me was that the reason we're having a hard time finding a salon to put houses on is because the communities don't want it if that's the case and we want to spread awareness about what a houses community could look like using the example of so i've been following them for a very long time and i think it's a great program that was Kauai Houseless Advocate Keloha Matsuda, founder of Healing Kauai's Houseless and Community Needs. Their active Facebook group has over 600 members, and they're looking for best practices in housing all across the state. has been working on affordable housing. Mahalo to Housing Director Adam Raversi for his help getting this picture here. Ke'alala was just finished, that's 29 units, and half of the 70 people in there are kids. They're just about to finish Pua Loke in Lihue with 54 units there. The majority are for 60% of the area median income or less. Um, Waimeahuaka'i has 67 rentals now for that same income level, and there are more under construction. But remember, the official estimate of about 500 homeless people on, on Kauai. Now, Council Member Felicia Cowden says that 500 could be just a fraction of the real number. An educator with experience in youth outreach, Cowden chairs the Public Safety and Human Services Committee, and she's got a particular interest in houseless issues. She says Kauai's making slow progress, but the one emergency shelter on the island currently fits 19 people. Councilmember Cowden says the average selling price of a house has gone up $400,000 in one year. Meanwhile, I asked Cowden if there's any shelter provided for people when the county shelter-in-place zones are, are being cleared. No, not really. I mean, they are somewhat allowed to go to other encampments if there is room. We have gone with outreach, you know, social services outreach, and definitely some people get places. We have had a success that we're really proud of called Kealaula. Some people have gotten HUD. We've been able to place some people in senior housing. How many people were there at Lidgate uh, at, at, at its largest? There was, there was less than 100. It was probably approaching 100. But Department of Hawaiian Homelands gave them 30 days to be in there. That was inspiring. I was kind of a little bit relieved when they didn't want the move because if somebody's blind, deaf, um, missing limbs or both feet, where do you safely take somebody like that and set them and walk away? You know, it's, it's a real moral dilemma. Are you saying that that's the nature of the people who are currently living unsheltered at the on, yeah, on DHHL yeah, yeah, there is, well, the ones at DHHL, there's a range of health challenges in there because our parks department has really had to be the social safety net for economic failure that is happening across our country. And it's certainly escalating now. And I think something very important for people to consider as we approach this um, sundown of the eviction moratorium, it was supposed to have happened last week. Difficult on landlords who are having people who aren't paying them. You know, we're seeing uh, this surge of house price escalation. Here, our average selling price of a house has gone up about $400,000 or a little more in less than a year. And we're having blocks of houses being bought at once by the same buyer. And so our house costs are going up. We have people who are being forced to sell out from underneath their tenants who haven't been able to pay because many people need that money to pay the mortgage. We got $22 million for Kauai to do rental assistance. So that is beginning to get expressed, but it was a good amount, but too late. 
And so what I find when I try and help people get places, uh, an extreme example, we had a young mother give birth at a Nini in the rain, in the lightning storm. And she wouldn't go to the hospital because she's afraid they would take her baby, which is a reasonable fear. He's doing pretty well now. He's three and a half months old. But I had a wealthy family offer to you know, pay for their housing for a month. So I looked to work with somebody like Wynn, an organization, Women in Need. So as I just was trying to call around or look around for anywhere, people don't want to rent to people who have been houseless. They are afraid that there's going to be community posse that has you know been with them. They're afraid of that. They're afraid they won't be able to rent them, get, get rid of them if they eventually can't pay. I found that I- people who do get housed with HUD vouchers and so on, are often an extremely good bet for landlords, though, because their rental payment is, in fact, uh, guaranteed by the entity that housed them. Well, that's right. We're trying. It's not that the county doesn't care. I think that the challenge is, is how do we have places like what's in Waianae or Waimanalo on Oahu? I'm going to be going over in the next week or two to meet with people who've helped those encampments and try and learn from them. We have uh, some of the people from the Lidgate encampment. We're going to do a Zoom meeting with people from the Waianae encampment, you know, with myself and different um, nonprofits and allies. We're going to try and learn from that experience. But I want to say to the listener is so many of them, especially in the, the area of the island where I have lived for decades. I've known them since they were children in my classes when I taught the remedial program. And they were wonderful kids then with very hard situations in their lives, many of them. So I know the difficulties they endured that probably followed them as they grew into adulthood. I know people who have been business owners and have been happily married and owned their houses. And it's a a cascade of crises, you know, there's the car accident that kills the child or, you know, deeply impairs the husband. And then there's the stress and then the cancer and then the divorce or being widowed or, and then moving into a rental house and that rental house burns down. And I feel like as I spend time with people, but for the grace of God, go I, you know, and when I hear people be very judgmental, like there's something wrong with these people, Sure, but there would be something wrong with me if I went through what they went through, if I had my feet cut off and couldn't work any longer and had these problems. You know, there's, there's a lot of health issues. You know, I just encourage people who are listening to listen with a compassionate heart and to know that, you know, we're in this giant, I would say, game of musical chairs. We have had waves of people moving here A day came in May of 2020 where it went from no activity in these houses that are maybe a million to two million in that range. And then realtors that I was calling to check on how it was going, they said they would get 60 a day virtual tours, not selling 60 units a day because they didn't have 60 units to sell but they were selling every unit that they had quickly. Houses are vulnerable and we have to have protective policies. Otherwise, if we don't take care of people who have dilapidated homes or challenges some way or another, you know, we have overcrowded houses, right? People are sort of, you can see nine cars in front of a three bedroom house. Sure, people don't have the money to remodel. And their brother came home with his wife and kids and they're all, they're like the people in the encampments. They're a community of people who are struggling together to make it work. Cost of building materials has really gone up. I forecast that this is going to be more severe in three to four months if, if there's nothing that really changes the direction. I, I don't know what that change would be. It's hard to make policy that would create such a big correction and change. What I don't want to see is the industries that come in and often flank the high-tech industry, like 
just in my, my zip code, we probably have 20 billionaires and many of them are good people, but we have had so much intense wealth move here. And then we have waves of people moving here with their independent economy. You know, they, they, they have an external way of making money. So they're, they're working virtually from the continental United States or wherever else. So the good news on that is it gives us kind of like an upper middle class that we haven't had. We've been an inverse bell curve of normal people economically for quite a while. We have the rich and the poor. So now we're kind of filling in that group that has um, a little bit more money, but they outcompete for the rentals. They outcompete for the purchases. I haven't met anybody I don't like. We have a good group of people. They care about the kids, but most of them haven't ever really hardly been here before. In years past, people have been coming for a long time. It's their dream to be here. Now we have people who are fleeing the floods, the fires, the violence, the virus, and they're coming for safety. So they're coming for a different reason than what this place actually is. They're coming here to protect their kids. It's a much younger group of people than we've had. We have more children coming. There's many blessings in that. Another blessing I could see is that I hope that our own kids, instead of leaving for college and staying away, can go to college, learn something, maybe get a job for a year or two and bring it home, right? There's always silver linings everywhere. But if we aren't careful, we are going to replace our people. And you'll see restaurants that have big lines, huge lines, grocery stores with huge lines, and they only have one or two um, cash registers open. Why? Because they don't have anybody to do the job, right? People can't open a whole evening because there's nobody to work. Bars, they can't get bartenders. People can't afford to live here anymore. And the people who are coming aren't looking for those jobs. Some, yes, but it's, it's um, a real shift. And so when we're talking about our houseless community, even if they went and got work, like some of these jobs that are uh, retail or just counter at a, a takeout food place, they're paying $20, $22 an hour, maybe health insurance. You still can't afford to live on that. Still can't afford that work. Really? You know, yeah, really. <laughs> I know in one park at Lydgate, we had 22 essential workers living there. Sometimes it kind of almost seemed like, are they essential workers or are they expendable workers? They're out there putting themselves at a health risk, but they can't afford a house and they might be working two jobs. But in these encampments, other campers, like they clustered the workers in an area where stronger campers surrounded them. So if they went to work, their things didn't get taken. How many hidden homeless do you think you have? I would guess probably three to 5,000. Often mm -hmm. they are in my own home, you know, their friends, family, relatives, somebody who doesn't have a situation for a month or two or three. I would say the big takeaway from me is that we haven't solved our houseless problem and that we have, while we're moving them out of the parks, it might be for people who don't like to look at them, might be inconvenient emotionally to see people struggle. That struggle is gonna get louder and louder because even when we have these other projects in the pipeline, it will be good for some, but I think there's going to be many coming out of stability. In fact, I have three phone calls waiting for me to return that are families in crisis that have jobs. Why should anybody rent to a family? They don't need to have the kids. They, people want to rent to somebody from the continental United States because if they have a problem, they, they're gone they don't have to struggle with it and they're able to get people who can pay a lot more. Kauai Council member Felicia Cowden has been a Kauai resident since the early 1980s. She lives in Kilauea. All Kauai Council members serve at large.
Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. This week marked the 50th anniversary of the publication of the Pentagon Papers, a classified Defense Department study chronicling decades of failed U.S. policy in Vietnam. On the next Fresh Air from our archives, interviews with Daniel Ellsberg, who leaked the papers to the New York Times and Washington Post, and Ben Bradley, who was then the Post's editor. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following Science Friday. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to enjoy the new museum-wide exhibition Joyful Return on Friday and Saturday evenings until 9 p.m. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. the Hawaii Symphony's back playing sunset concerts at the Waikiki Shell? It's one of Honolulu's best experiences, not too terribly dimmed by current travails the musicians are going through. You may have heard about the birds nesting in the rafters, thus the extra drapery and tents over the cello section. It's been a mess. The musicians have been working under these conditions for months now. But you know what? I'd like you to meet Ignis Jang, the Hawaii Symphony's concertmaster. Maybe you've heard him before on HPR 2. Iggy's nurtured a generation of Hawaii's best violin players, and over the pandemic, his symphony role expanded with a weekly video conversation about making music. It's called Tuning Up. I thought Iggy revealed an amazing truth about violin playing when we talked recently. St- um, we started talking about how his fellow symphony players have really fared through this pandemic? We are performers, but we are also educators. And the teaching is what kept me going at first. I think just uh, to see the resiliency of uh, my students online on the other side of the computer screen, Mm -hmm. talking about how easily people adapt and the students, you know, just showing resiliency, enthusiasm, uh, dedication to their lesson and just hearing them play this dialogue that teacher and students have had, we never lost that. Oh, I can imagine that really working, Iggy. I really can, right? And you could work on stuff very intimately with someone by video. Yeah. You can. It's just one angle of a, of a camera view, of course, so it's not the same. But um, as the lessons progressed, then you got more comfortable with the format. I want to get to making music for you on a personal level, but let's talk about the symphony and what being a part of the symphony was like through this. It's been challenging for everyone. Um, It's that balance of teaching and having their salaries continued throughout, right, by the symphony. Yes, the the teaching has been uh, absolutely important. The, The symphony has been very committed to covering our health insurance, which has been essential. Um, some of my colleagues who had rent to pay every month, some of them managed, some of them um, had family on the mainland, so they've been staying on the mainland. I feel that this summer is the beginning of the end of the pandemic with more and more musicians on stage, with more and more um, audience members. Thankfully, the shell was there for us. Um, you know, we've had to deal with uh, some unexpected guests that... Uh, You're talking about the birds. I'm talking about birds, you know. Um, what has it been like? You know, for some reason, the symphony is very much associated with birds. We've had the symphony of Hawaiian birds, mm-hmm. but those are not that rare birds who've uh, taken refuge at the shell. Right, the birds roosting in the shell rafters, the protective drapes, the unfortunate tents over the cello section are part of a situation well known to city authorities who are working on a solution. For us, 
Having Iggy in the studio is a great chance to talk about quality of sound. We were discussing the various experiments he's run, pairing the violin with other instruments, and he revealed an intangible truth about the violin. Its tone actually comes from inside the player. We look first at a composition by Donald Womack. Reiko Kimura plays Koto with Hawaii Symphony's concertmaster, Iggy Jang. to listen carefully because it's not a sound you're used to. You know, I'm used to playing with an orchestra or with a pianist or with cellist. Um, but the koto uh, it was a, a novelty for me. There's a difference in terms of sheer volume because the violin is a sustained instrument and the koto is a, you basically pluck the string. There was a bit of an adjustment on that level and so you have to have really good ears. You want to put each instrument's best foot forward. is not just with the right hand, which is the bow, right? So you draw the bow across. But it's also with the vibrato of the left hand. So each violinist creates their own palette of tone qualities. And you know, you hear about this player having a Stradivarius or Guarnieri, but really it's a lot of it, the core, comes from the person itself. So that's what you dedicate yourself, is to create your own voice, literally. that you can play with any other instruments and any other performance and you'll never lose that central identity that you have. Now, here, the supple maturity of violinist Ignis Jang intertwined with Shirin Pandarolu harp. Thank you. 
La Vida Breve, violinist Ignace Jang with harp, harpist Siri Pandarolu. Jang is concertmaster for the Hawaii Symphony. And remember, July 2nd and 3rd, it's music for and by Queen Lili Okalani in the Sheraton Starlight series at the Waikiki Shell. I've been, and it's a beautiful experience. Shepherd Fairy mural at Ward in Ala Moana could be compared to living with a Rauschenberg or having a Van Gogh in your life. How Nossum, Deffer, these are among the big image makers of our time, and now a lot of them are all together in Powwow, the first decade, a show now on the Bishop Museum campus. Take the kids, you will see masters of street art, your favorites from Kaka'ako, some really virtuosic work. It's fun. It's really fun. Jasper Wong is the founder of Powwow, the street art festival. And we were talking about Hawaii ties that so many key mural artists have. OG Slick, Woes, international success stories are from Hawaii. So let's take a look at how that's done with Jasper himself. I remember grabbing Jasper by cell on the go at Fresh Cafe when we was putting the first powwow on his credit card. Ten years later, now... Jasper just completed a handsome clothing design for the NBA and WNBA. He got into NFTs, non-fungible tokens, and figured out how to get more art into the lives of local kids. It's kind of an informative journey. So, um, Jasper Wong, what was your major? I have a BFA in illustration. Okay. I went to California College of the Arts in San Francisco. Uh, And you graduated when? Oh, six, oh, seven. Oh, six. Oh, six. Okay, that was still kind of a time when illustrators had their track that they were going to go into, yeah. and it was a pretty yeah. limited field. It was super limited. It, it, it's, and the social media wasn't really a thing yet as yeah. a promotional tool for yourself. So the only way you could promote your work as a young illustrator is by printing postcards and mailing it to art directors and editors in hopes that people will hire you. And the tracks were really sort of directed at editorial illustration and children's book illustration, which I didn't want to really do either. (laughs) So I tried to find my own path along that, along the way. What started working? Moving to another country? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I moved to Hong Kong. Yeah, I moved to Hong Kong with a curiosity of how things were made, like how things were manufactured. You know, how to get things from point A to point B. Like if I wanted to make a chair, a shoe, a bag or anything, like what was that process? It was stuff that they didn't teach you in school. And I felt like I needed to learn in order for me to sort of move forward with my own career or try to find my way. So I moved to Hong Kong for that reason. And I met um, manufacturers from everyone from Ralph Lauren to uh, Coach to Steve Madden to, uh, to all these sort of different brands to just sort of like learn how to make things. But at the same time, I also then ended up working for a, a magazine, a street lifestyle magazine called Hype Beast in Hong Kong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, I fell in love with showcasing my work in galleries um, while I was living in the Bay Area because it, it was such sort of like an artistic city. Like everyone was an artist at that time. You know, San Francisco was just really like <laughs> yeah. a creative hub in a lot of ways. Less so now, but back then it was like really like everyone was an artist. And, in San Francisco, it was it was really a beautiful thing, and and then there was always there was tons of galleries. There was openings every weekend, all the time, multiple sh- multiple shows all the time, all the museums out there, and so you know it was that it was really the only way to showcase your work was in galleries because you know Instagram wasn't really a thing, and so the only way that people saw your work was through gallery shows, and the only way that your work would get validated was through people seeing it in those in those exhibitions, and I fell in love with that. And I wanted to showcase my work in Hong Kong galleries, but I kept getting rejected. So as a reaction to that, I started my own gallery. Because I figured if you can't get into a gallery, you might as well just make your own gallery to show your own work. And that was the, the very first um, exhibition, was, a, was the very first powwow. And the, and the idea was to really kind of go outside of what was the 
the Hong Kong way of thinking. And so our thinking was, let's just do art for art's sake without the thought or the pressure of trying to sell the work either. So we actually like destroyed all the artwork after making it. Um, <laughs> Is that the audaciousness of a certain time of life, Jasper? Yeah, yeah. Well, but also like it shows like sort of the ephemeral nature of art too, which kind of plays into what we do now, right? With like murals. What were the great things that came out of that first exhibit? I think it was sort of like a general idea of, of a mission of, of what we wanted to do, you know, which included sharing process. And, and, and that a lot of times the process that leads to final art is more interesting than the final art itself often sometimes. So then being able to share process was also sort of can inspire the public to be creative. Um, collaboration, you know, to sort of bring, our, uh, bring artists together and create new work through collaborative efforts and sort of um, doing work art for art's sake, you know? And so those kinds of initial missions and ethos of Powell started there, which then made sense for us to do murals because they kind of fit a lot of, a lot of our missions that we were creating. Oh, to have art for art's sake as the start of anything, it's almost a nutty place to start. <laughs> yeah, it is. But plus, it, it has become something that is totally branded and businesses love it now, right? What's going on? Talk to me about how you currently work with brands now who all want to get in on this thing that started as arts for art's sake. Yeah, I mean, the festival itself is still very much like that. You know, we still struggle to raise enough funds to do those festivals because we still don't make money with Powell festivals. You know, because we're not charging tickets to sort of see murals. They're for the public. And all the ticket sales that are happening for this exhibition go to the Bishop Museum for their nonprofit. And so we're still doing it, art for art's sake, in terms of festivals. But at the same time, we're also seeing that people now see the impact that public art can have and want to put it on their properties. So it's led to commissioned work, you know, for different properties, um, you know, not just here, but globally. You know, so we're seeing more and more artists get work to do murals, you know, to get paid work to do murals. Um, and, and we're seeing more and more brands utilize artists for different campaigns and different projects, which is great. This is an amazing thing to sort of witness that and witness artists quitting their day jobs and tackling and being artists full time, you know, and being able to like raise their families and take care of themselves and make a living doing art. And that's huge. You're describing something that's, that's all, almost just taking shape and it helps to put words to it. Yeah, that's one of the interesting things is that you can really, as an artist, you can really diversify yourself. Don't think of yourself as just the painter or just an illustrator or just a sculptor, but look into sort of how your work can apply to different mediums and apply to, to different industries. You know, like, like how does your work work on a shoe? Like how does your work work as an edition sculpture or, or as a toy? How does your work work in a video game or anything for that matter? Jasper, how are you working with Toyota right now? You know, what do they come to you for? So I kind of was the, like in Toyota Hawaii, at least the beginnings of their ambassador program. So as a Toyota ambassador, I do different work to try to promote Toyota through art. Yeah, yeah talk about local, global. How, you, how do you see that now? Yeah, no, absolutely. So many of my clients are not local. I have a lot of clients that are global. Yeah, I'm like, I'm, I'm doing a lot of different projects. Um, How do they find you? Through just that global network of artists, you know, through putting your work out there. Because any, anything that you put out there doesn't stay within a local bubble. It, it, you have to push it globally. Um, and I've been lucky in the fact that I have like, a, I've picked up a lot of amazing clients, not just locally, but, but everywhere. You know, recently I just finished a collection with uh, the NBA and the WNBA. That was amazing. Thank you. Amazing, okay? <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm doing, uh, I did some work with Hulu. Uh, NBA, Hulu. You had a terrific gallery show. I was trying a new medium, right? A gallery show online. <laughs> that was fun. The thing is, I, I like to keep my doors open and try new things. So I have a bunch of projects coming out, you know, with, with more brands, different collections, but also... You know, I have like a, like a toy coming out too. I'm doing some stuff with video games. Um, I signed different NDAs, so I can't talk about a lot of different things until they're oh. actually released. Yeah, because I have some other projects that, that are coming out with, with uh, different upcoming films too, but I can't talk about it either because of NDAs. So when they come out, I can tell you. <laughs> okay. But also but another, it... another thing that I'm doing, that I've been doing is I've been teaching. Hmm. So I've, you know, I've, I've taught at Punahou and Iolani, but I turned down like 
future teaching gigs to teach at Palama Settlement. What are those classes about? So Palama Settlement is a community center in Kalihi and the Palama District. And those districts are notoriously underserved. A lot of low-income housing and public housing in those districts. If you're looking at the students and the people that are there, you also have to understand that COVID made it harder because COVID in a lot of ways, you know, there's a lot of access inequity too. Like these students don't have as much resources as other districts or as other people, you know? And, and one thing that's big is access inequity. Like people had to distance learn, but not everyone had computers and everyone had internet access. And if there was no libraries, then they really had no access to learn. So I've been told by them that a lot of students are maybe like two grades behind or some of them are lost altogether. They've like left the school system altogether. You know, they, they don't believe in it anymore. And it was important when Palma Selma reached out to me for us to find a way to give back to these kids. Pre-COVID, they were already cutting art to music out of curriculum in, in public schools. Mm -hmm. My daughter's public school, Haoni, they cut out arts like maybe like two years ago. You know, so my intent at Palama Settlement is to build an art school, but I want to just start teaching right away. So, you know, I have a group of 15 students that I started teaching yesterday. I'm teaching more of an, an applied arts class where we're learning how to take their art that they create or learn how to create art then that can then sort of be applied to commercial product or to commercial projects. We're starting off with like designing t-shirts, you know, we're going to do logos, we're going to do posters, concept, concept designs, everything. So I'm trying to also bring in a lot of people to sort of do the same, you know, like, you know, like musicians, interior designers, architects, uh, a variety of different people to sort of see if they can give back to, to these communities, because I feel like it's important to do that. Yeah, so much creativity there. And it's really interesting to see your early interest in production methods bearing fruit here with all the different ways you can help them to tell their story. Yeah, I think that's one of the sad things about art being cut out of schools is that it's still a major tool, a method to sort of share their voices. And education can't just be focused on STEM. You know, it has to be STEAM. You have to have art in there. It can't be the first thing that gets removed from curriculums. It has to be core. But, you know, that's not the case. So the only way that it can be core is if we give back and teach it ourselves through grassroots methods and through teaching community centers. You know. Artist Jasper Wong is a founder of Powwow Hawaii. Powwow, the first decade, continues at the Bishop Museum. But be sure to reserve a ticket. They've been selling out. Even when your days shift and change, some things don't, like HPR keeping you informed with news you can trust and providing an oasis of music when you need it. So stick with your routine and stay connected at home. Listen to HPR on air, online, or on your smart speaker. Whether you're working in your street clothes or in your pajamas, HPR is here for you. Just ask your smart speaker to play Hawaii Public Radio. We're well into this Aloha Friday already. And just wondering, how many of you know the Aloha Friday song? <laughs> if you really want to go back, the city and county of Honolulu did allow employees to wear sports shirts during the summer since the 1940s. But Aloha Friday, the practice of Aloha wear on Fridays, started in 1966. The legend goes, Maui boy, Wilson Cannon, president of Bank of Hawaii, started wearing Aloha shirts on Fridays and the practice understandably caught on. In 1982, Kimo Kahoana's classic Aloha Friday song captured the essence of the Aloha Friday spirit, that is, priming for the weekend with friends and family. First of all, I have to mention Paul Dean Nato, who is the brother of Richard Nato. We used to play at a territorial tavern, Bob Hampton, uh, Aloha to Bob and Kay, and many of the great, great acts were there at Territorial Tavern. You, you know, Kelly Capone Beamer. Uh, we're talking about the brothers Casimero after they split from Peter Moon Band. We're talking about Gabby Pahinui, Eric Kamai and the Sons of Hawaii. Oh, they're just, I mean, Olomana. 
chariots. And in those days, they had the cello. They had this beautiful, wow, sound with Robert Poma and all these guys. So, you know, I'm leaving, I'm leaving a lot of wonderful acts out. But on Wednesday, we used to just gather together and we jammed for the secretaries. It was called Secretary's Day. So we jam and play music and stuff like that. And Paul Dean had this song, which was a little Friday. So he had the beginning of the song. I said, it's okay, but it's a little too slow for me. Can we do it like up country? He goes, yeah, I can. And then we go to record it in a house in IA. That song is pre-DUI, okay? So, so it's a carefree, it's local style, not meant to harm or hurt anyone. We know what the rules are today. You know what, there are a lot of things that you bring up in that song, Kimo, that people just, okay, primo beer. They primo still made beer, primo right? here in Hawaii in those days. They, they stopped it and then they brought it back. The and the disco, remember the disco era? Nobody thought there was going to be any live music anymore. They go out to the disco. Yeah, that's it. And then my friends always have to say, hey, brother, buy me a drink, man. So you got to have your credit card. You got to be ready. You got to take care. It's local style. And that was the carefree style then. And we end up with, the, okay, there's a break, Kimo. We can do an instrumental or you can say something. And that was a one-take improv. Okay, you know, when you want to get away, I mean, one thing about Friday, the working week is over. Yeah, frankly, I feel good, man. I work hard all week long, I can't wait to get away. You know, down like the beach, I'm cruising this weekend. Yeah, I get one hot concert too, man. That's the most important thing. The same thing too is to get enough money for gas and to go up to the East Coast. I like to see all them beautiful chicks. Yeah. America, you know, how can I get money? Right? What's that? My friends always say, Hey, brother, you can buy me one drink, man. Kimo and the crew, South Kenneth, the brew, Bullet, who meets smoking on the side. Kimo, I bet back in those days you were wearing like psychedelic printed polyester shirt open down to your stomach. <laughs> Dancing in the disco, right? That's right. That's in, that's in the disco and having fun. Wait, no, here's more. The bridge. Which it's Aloha Friday, no work till Monday. So what he did was he repeated it twice. And that was the chorus. And I said, you know, nah, I don't want to do that. He goes, what? I said, yeah, let's try something. So that's what happened. It's Aloha Friday. No work till Monday. I did, 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 did. Thank you. And thank you for asking. Thank you. <laughs> Mahalo, Kimo, Kahawano. <laughs> Well, I just hope you dooby-doo into your weekend. It's going to be a good one. It really is. The powwow show is there at Bishop Museum. I'm heading to Alpuni Space today, and it's on tomorrow. It's the vibration that now charms us. New work about moving through uncertain times. Really looking forward to the show at Alpuni Space now. And tomorrow, Saturday, 1 to 5, the official opening of the Downtown Arts Center. See you there. Well, that is just about it for this Aloha Friday. 
Thank you so much for your company. I'd hate to do this without you. And we love to hear from you, too. Got ideas? The talkback line is 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Post comments on social media. We like that. Listen back and share our shows at hawaiipublicradio.org. This program is a Kako thing. Produced by Savannah Harriman Pope, Russell Rubiono, and Vivian Song. Matthew Fairfax is our intern. This theme music's courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Noe Tanigawa. Be sure to join us Monday when Catherine Cruz picks up the conversation. Until then, let's take care of each other. Have a great Juneteenth. And now you know how to have a happy Aloha Friday. Thank you.